I'm Alexia Russell, and today on Waitangi Day, the detail is heading north. The Waitangi Museum, Te Kornahu, which is on the treaty grounds, is closed today. If it stayed open, the tens of thousands of people in town for commemorations would simply overwhelm it. The museum marks its fourth anniversary today, but it's a project that was decades in the making by the Waitangi National Trust. If you look at our board minutes going kind of all the way back, there's all these little mentions of when we build a museum all the way back from like the 1940s and it took us all the way till 2016 to actually build it and open it. Old and new have merged in a new showcase of the history of Waitangi in a museum at the Treaty Grounds. 176 years after the treaty was signed, it's the first time some items have been put on public display. As you leave the museum, you walk through a tunnel and enter the treaty grounds. The aim being that inside the museum you learn about Waitangi, you learn about the history of New Zealand, and then come here to see it for yourself. I did want to go and see it for myself, and who can resist a tour before opening hours? Museum curator Caitlin Timmer-Arens took me for a guided trip through audiovisual displays, a huge range of sometimes surprising artefacts, historic photos and documents carefully kept in dark spaces. The Waitangi National Trust's been amassing these pieces of history in a big secret warehouse on the treaty grounds for many, many years. We've been quite lucky here um, because we've been established since the 1930s. We've been seen as a kind of neutral, safe place for Taonga. And so some of our collection have been loaned to us for, you know, 50, 60, 70 years. The museum's a fascinating documentation of the merging of two peoples in Aotearoa and has a lot of great stories from before the Treaty of Waitangi was signed as Māori and Europeans met and clashed. Its stories take on extra significance as the country's school history curriculum changes take place and students get a more detailed look at the interaction of two peoples, including the pre-Waitangi Treaty, the 1835 Declaration of Independence. This section, uh, we call it the go-betweens, it actually covers everything from the late 1700s all the way up to 1829, so an enormous amount of history um, in a pretty small space. We picked kind of the pivotal moments Um, of events that happened around New Zealand and especially up here in the far north. The first mission station was established at Rangihaua Pa um, and it was an agreement between Reverend Samuel Marsden who was based in New South Wales and the Chief Ruatara. However we actually feature the Chief Te Uriokane here in the museum because by the time the transaction actually officially happened Ruatara had passed away and Te Uriokane had inherited Rangihaua. Um, Interestingly, if you look back at uh, written documents from the time and diaries of the men that were there, they don't know how to write or how to spell the names because Māori still was a verbal language only. And so they refer to him, to Uriokane and his wife sometimes as Mrs Gunner, Mr and Mrs Gunner. So it's, it's it's quite interesting to look back at the historical record and try and assign who we know people were to how they interpreted their names. How did the Europeans choose names of these people? That's... Well, they heard something, thought, oh, that's close enough, and wrote it down. All right, I... So, Kane, Gunner, almost. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and what, what was their purpose in, in coming here? Conversion, I presume. Christian conversion. Yeah, well, I mean, it's the, you know, the European white man's burden to go and spread his technology and his religion around the world. Um, so, yeah, Samuel Marsden, on behalf of the Church Missionary Society, which was Anglican, wanted to establish a mission here in New Zealand to kind of get the first real foothold here. Um, The establishment of the mission was actually held up by five years 
because of what we call kind of the void incident or the blowing up of the ship void. Three metres below the water, just off that tiny island, lie the remains of the sailing ship void. It's lain there for nearly 200 years, and all that's left is some charred rotten timber and some copper sheeting. This was no ordinary shipwreck. 60 people died, but there was no storm, no jagged rocks, and no one drowned. Those who perished on the Boyd were massacred and eaten. So the first missionaries were actually on their way to New Zealand in 1809, and they didn't get here until 1814. They got to New South Wales, and when they got there, um, the ship Boyd had been blown up here in New Zealand by, by uh, some Māori people um, and kind of Utu for the treatment of one of the sons of the chief on board. A lot of people will translate Utu as revenge, which isn't necessarily wrong. I prefer reciprocity right. as a translation there. Okay. So you've mistreated, you know, one of ours. Then, I mean, they didn't intend to blow the ship up. The ship was filled with gunpowder and compressed flour, oh. and it's very flammable. They definitely intended to kill many of the people that were on board, and they did uh, kidnap some and take them back to their home, and then the ship blew up. But it was an event that happened, again, still pre-Māori alphabet. And one of the main people involved was a chief named Tipuhi. And a chief from this side of the bay, Tipahi, he went over and tried to negotiate the release of some of um, the captives. And unfortunately, when it was printed in the newspapers, because Tipahi was there, Tipuhi was there, and their names were very similar, when they wrote it down and published it, they blamed Tipahi for the event. And so uh, a lot of people stormed Tepahi's Islands here in the bay, uh, killed him, killed a lot of his hapu um, in retribution for that, which they hadn't actually so it was really big been involved media in. Yes. And so because the Boyd event happened, Ruatara, he hears about this in New South Wales, he said to Samuel Marsden, look, I'll go home, I'll see if it's okay, see if it's safe for you to even come over. And so that's why it took that five years longer for that mission station to be established. So there was a lot of... We don't, I don't think we understand quite, you know, pre-treaty, how Māori were already taking advantages of what they were seeing coming in and leaving. I mean, they were great travellers. Oh, yeah, oh, absolutely. They estimate that by the time the treaty was signed, over a 1,000 Ngāpuhi had been overseas. And that's just wow. Māori from up here in the north. And what did they want to do overseas? They just wanted to explore, they wanted to learn, they wanted to meet people. Um, Māori are very, very good at adapting to change. Anything that is helpful, they would adapt and bring in. Um, that's why language took off so quickly, written language, um, the tools and technologies. As soon as there was something helpful, they would adapt it and bring it into their everyday life. So um, the first two that went over to Cambridge were named Tuai and Titiri, and they went with Thomas Kendall. He was New Zealand's first school teacher. So he went over to Rangihoa Pa and he set himself up a school and his wife and kids, some of his kids joined him as well and he had made the first kind of attempt to write the Māori language down when he was living in New South Wales. Um, there's an excellent book about Tuai and there's some examples of Thomas Kendall writing down Māori and one of the examples is W-H-I and to me I'd go immediately fee because of yeah. how we pronounce Māori now. But no, he was actually trying to write down water. Why? But he was doing it that, with that British oh. kind of why, like you'd spell white. Right. So Thomas Kendall took Tuai and Titere to Cambridge University in the UK. 
Um, they stayed with a lot of religious families while they were over there. Um, and they met with the linguist Samuel Lee. And so they started the kind of process of formalising and writing down uh, the Māori alphabet. Now this picture of Tua, you can see he's got a bit of a European haircut. He actually really took to English life, started calling himself Thomas. Oh really? Yep. You can't really see too much in the picture there, but he actually, he, he does have his tāmoko on there. The people in the UK were quite fascinated by Māori people. These, you know, they looked very different, they dressed very differently, though not for very long. Some of them went over in traditional dress and immediately put on um, more European clothing. Some of them went over in European clothing. But, yeah, everyone wanted to meet the Māori visitors. So when, you know, they said, oh, we think we'll go to Cambridge. I don't think Cambridge went, oh no. Um, and then 1820, uh, Hongihika and his cousin Waikato, they go over to England as well. They go and they meet King George IV. And then while they're on that trip, they go to Cambridge as well, and they finish the work that Tuai and Titi had started. So following their visit in 1820, the first book in Māori is published, um, and from there Māori becomes a written language. The museum has a substantial section on Hongihika, but if you think you recognise that name, you probably don't. Hongihika was a famous Napui chief born around 1772, but he wasn't as famous as the rebellious war leader Honeheke, who was born a generation later in 1807 and was responsible for the repeated chopping down of the flagstaff at Kororareka. One of the first thing I do on my tours, and I know that our teachers do it as well, is ask, you've heard of Honeheke? And they're like, yes. Honeheke? Yes. <laughs> Did you know the different people? And um, that one, when people say yes, that one's a little bit quieter. So Hongihika was actually Honeheke's father-in-law. Uh, it's quite interesting with these because you can see we've got one, two, three pictures of here. They all look a little bit different. So no paintings were done of him while he was alive. So they're all based on someone else's interpretation of someone else's interpretation of someone's memory. Right. But Hongi did carve a number of busts of himself on his journeys. And so one of them is at Auckland Museum, one of them is in New South Wales, and one of them is in the UK. And they are um, fully carved with all of his tamuko. So you can see right, the image so here is so actually, the, actually the pretty good. Is accurate. Yeah, it's pretty good. When King George IV met Hongi and Waikato, he addressed them both as King Hongi and King Waikato. And they addressed him as King George. And, I mean, by all accounts, they quite enjoyed each other's company. George took them through his armoury, told them all about the history of European warfare, showed them, like, the changes in technology that they'd gone through as well, um, gave a lot of gifts. Hongi and Waikato gave a lot of gifts in exchange. Um, and then that relationship carried on for a number of years until Hongi's death. One of Hongi's relatives, Eruwera Pari Hongi, he was the scribe for a lot of our early documents. Um, he actually wrote a letter to... King George IV when Hongi had died and in it he wrote, your friend Hongi has passed away. So they, were, you know, maintained a very friendly relationship for a long time. Now it says here the king gave Hongi a coat of chain mail among mm -hmm. other things. Well, what on earth would he have done with that? Worn it for war. Did he, he did wear it? Yes. Um, so when he went south down to Rotorua, um, he was actually shot in the head by one of the... Uh, Hapu down there, but he was wearing the helmet that the king had given him. <laughs> yes. It mustn't look so out of place. Oh, incredibly, yeah. incredibly so. Um, but it wasn't the only kind of armour that was given to any of the Māori chiefs. Um, another chief, Tituri, 
he received a suit of armour from King William IV. Um, and so we've got the uh, breastplate oh, wow. here. That is not the sort of thing you expect to find in the New Zealand Museum. No. <laughs> <laughs> Especially because it dates to about the 1600s, mid-1600s, wow. um, which is, of course, before Europeans arrived here in New Zealand. Um, Titori, he didn't actually meet King William IV, but he sent him a letter and he sent him a number of Cody spars. Basically what he said was, you're always at war with the French, here are some supplies, think of me as a friend. And King William responded and said, thank you very much, here is a suit of armour. So another strategist. Yes. Yeah. Um, people, they just, they don't know how many relationships were built between Māori and the Crown mm. pre-treaty. Māori leaned on that friendly relationship when calling for help to sort out unruly settlers. So this letter that we're looking at here, this was written to King William IV and it was sent to him in the early 1830s, so 1831. And basically what the letter said across its six pages was there's a lot of Europeans here, they're pretty lawless, we don't necessarily care if they follow our laws specifically, we just really want them to follow somebody's laws. So the request was to the king to come and sort your people out? Yeah. And so as a result of this letter, James Busby was appointed to New Zealand as our first official British resident. He was a Scotsman by way of Australia, and I'm not sure really how he was appointed because his qualifications were in winemaking and teaching wine at a boys' school. But um, he came here to New Zealand, to Waitangi. Where the first grapes were planted. Yeah, Busby liked his wine. So he introduced a number of species here to New Zealand and also to the Hunter Valley in Australia Um, because that was where he lived before here. Mm. So this letter was signed by 13 northern chiefs, signed with uh, drawings of their tamoko. So if you're going to put a piece of yourself down on on paper and you're not yet literate, you're going to pick a piece of your identity, as these chiefs did. Um, But you can see it blowing up a lot better on the wall behind us. So we've got chiefs uh, Patuone, Tamati Wakanini, as he was back then, just Nene, Titori, and they all signed with... Yeah, with their tattoos. In 1835, a document preceding the treaty was circulated around the country. First signed at Waitangi, it was the Declaration of Independence. So this document here um, said, you know, we are here, we are independent, and it was recognised by King William IV and then the rest of the world. So without this document, we wouldn't have needed a treaty. This document gave sovereignty to Māori, an independent sovereign nation under the leadership of the Māori chiefs. That's what this document gave us. And so when people wanted to come here and settle, we needed another document because we were an independent sovereign nation and you just can't go and invade and settle one of those. So without this document, we wouldn't have actually necessarily needed the treaty. So very important, forgotten piece of our history. And so who instigated it? Well, a lot of people give the credit to James Busby, um, but all the way back 1806, really early, um, the chief we were talking about earlier, Tapahi, when he went over and he met with Governor King of New South Wales, you know, a lot of the questions that were asked were around leadership and things like that. And so when he came back, he kind of postulated this concept of um, a confederation of chiefs who would meet regularly and discuss things um, and so that was formed and that was called uh, Te 
whakameninga o ngā hapu o New Tirini, so the Confederation of Tribes of New Zealand. And um, so when Busby gathered all the chiefs here at Waitangi and said, hey, I've heard some rumblings about the French and, you know, I think you need to declare your independence, the Māoris that went there said, well, great, we've been, you know, this has been an idea we've been throwing around for decades. This isn't a new concept to us. Let's go. So unlike the treaty, which took a couple of days of discussion, this one didn't need that. They were ready to go. Yep. And right next to it is the Confederated Tribes flag. Yep. When did this come into existence? Uh, this flag came into existence, predates the Declaration of Independence by only a year, so 1834. Uh, it was chosen here at Waitangi on the 20th of March of that year. It was one of three designs that was offered up on what is now the treaty grounds, pretty much where our own flag staff sits. And it was voted on by chiefs that were invited to Waitangi, so there were 40-ish that were invited, and this one got 12 votes, and so it won. Donkey could have taken a leaf out of their book, perhaps. Oh, I <laughs> was horrified, honestly, when he was asked during the flag referendum about this flag, and he said, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. This is still one of our legal official flags that has never been decommissioned. You and I can fly this overseas instead of the Blue Ensign if we want to. Equally legally valid. There's James Busby and Agnes. It's his house that's on the ground. It is his house, yeah. yes. So, um, quite interestingly, the governor of New South Wales, Governor Burke, didn't really like Busby. And you can see here we're looking at the plans of what Busby asked for. Um, and then this little bit here with the bolder lines, that's actually what he received. Oh, about a third of it. Yes. <laughs> so he, he was a grand design man. <laughs> he, you know, thought that they would have more than one bedroom, which is only fair when you've mm. got a wife and you're expecting children. Um, so they kind of amended the plans of what they've called the drawing room. That's the bedroom now. The china closet actually links into the bedroom. Um, I imagine it was used as a second bedroom. Mm. The vestibule and office, that's the entryway, and then the dining room, that is the parlour where the treaty was translated into Māori, mm. um, as well as the dining room, and then the house just ends. He did build some additions later, but the entire house that got sent over from New South Wales was all made in Australia. Um, we joke. The original prefab. Yeah, we were always like, you know, Ikea, this is that. Um, <laughs> and it took him about nine months to put it back together. All of the joins had been carved with Roman numerals and then the whole house had been disassembled and sent over flat pack. So, I mean, it took him nine months to put back together a pre-built house. I don't think building was his forte. The museum's prized possession is an original Goldie given by the artist to Lord Bledisloe. We have kind of the jewel of our collecting crown in one of the display cases. We have a Goldie portrait of Tāmati Wakanene. The artist, C.F. Goldie, wanted to give this to Lord Bledisloe. And Lord Bledisloe, of course, was the man who purchased Waitangi and established the Waitangi National Trust. And so he, Lord Bledisloe, gave the Goldie to um, the Waitangi National Trust and kind of started our collection all the way back in the 1930s. We sent it down to Auckland Art Gallery uh, for a number of decades uh, with some of our other fine art pieces because we couldn't look after them in the way that they needed before we built this museum. Now speaking of that... This soon-to-be-completed state-of-the-art museum is Waitangi's latest showpiece. It's right alongside where the Treaty of Waitangi was signed 175 years ago. And it's that treaty the museum wants to put on display. It was always the, the dream of the, of the Trust Board that one day the original treaty document would come back to Waitangi. 
problem is the very delicate document is housed 700 kilometres away at the National Archive in Wellington and it doesn't really do travel. The document's fragility is almost breathtaking. Transporting it over a significant distance to Northland presents high risk in my view. Here we are coming into the actual room with the facsimile of the yes. One day, I mean, do you ever imagine that one day you'll have the real version here? Shouldn't it be here? Oh, that's a very, very contentious question. Of course, absolutely. <laughs> it is in a very good exhibition in Wellington right. um, called Hetohu. It's with the women's suffrage petition as well as the Declaration of Independence. If you do live in Wellington, I would recommend you head over to National Library. Um, honestly, I would be too terrified to be responsible for the original treaty absolutely Mm. we did when we envisioned the museum we had plans for ridiculously secure display cases on the off chance that they said yes to us having it back Um, but when the no came in these ones are beautiful wonderful very secure but they have about 15 levels less security than the ones that we were intending for the original sheets. a bit of dosh. Yes. <laughs> but these uh, facsimiles were produced by Weta Workshops for us. Oh, and, wow. yeah, they are incredible quality. I've seen the originals. I've seen these. You can't really tell the difference. A lot of our visitors, if they don't read, don't know that they're not the originals. Right. My favourite thing in here is this portrait of Queen Victoria that we're just walking past in the documents room. And it's my favourite because of the sheer size Uh, It is nine foot tall. It was brought here by Queen Elizabeth on her ship, the Britannia, in the 1970s. It was intended to go in the treaty house. It didn't fit any of the walls. Now, the Queen was very nice, and she told the Waitangi National Trust that if they could find a qualified person, um, they were allowed to actually cut a bit off and shorten the canvas. The Waitangi National Trust said, thank you for that offer, but no. Uh, we'd like to kind of keep the integrity of the portrait. Um, and one of, our dire- oh, one of our trust board members was the director of the Auckland Museum. So he actually took it to Auckland and they looked after it until the year 2000 from the 1970s, so quite a while. By the year 2000, they forgot it was ours. They loaned it down to Government House in Wellington. Nice of them. Yes, and so when we were looking for objects and time to go into the museum we wrote a letter to Government House and asked if we could have our portrait back, and they said, oh, I didn't know it was yours. <laughs> <laughs> but it's here, so yes. you won that one. Well, there's a lovely plaque on the back that said that the Queen gave it to us. Oh, all right. Yes. All <laughs> but, I mean, it only took us about you know, nearly 50 years to build a wall finally big enough to actually have it on. And today, the size of the Waitangi Museum has doubled with the opening of a second museum commemorating the Māori Battalion, Pioneer Battalion and the New Zealand Wars. Included in its exhibits are items from families of soldiers which have never been publicly displayed before. That's the detail for Waitangi Day. I'm Alexia Russell. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by NZ On Air. Hit the subscribe button to stay across the detail every day. And if you're on Apple, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners find us. This episode was engineered by Rangi Powick. Thanks to Waitangi Museum curator Caitlin Timmer-Ariens.